0: The Lord be with, you. And also be with you. Lift up your hearts. Indeed, we gather here in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org with hearts and voices uplifted in the praise of God. This week, we continue our National Summer Preacher Series focusing around the theme of Darwin in faith. In this year of the bicentennial of Darwin's birth, and the sesquicentennial of the publication of his landmark On the Origin of Species. We welcome to the pulpit today the Reverend Dr. Charles Eust, Senior Minister of the Church of the Savior United Methodist Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Furthermore, Mr. Justin Blackwell leads the Marsh Chapel Choir in music bringing out the theme of creation, especially selections from Franz Joseph Haydn's oratorio, The Creation. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away in these weeks preaching the gospel in the voice of Marsh Chapel across the country. As you are so moved, we would invite your participation in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. Let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Protector of all who trust in you without whom nothing is strong nothing is holy Increase and multiply upon us your mercy That with you as our ruler and guide We may so pass through things temporal That we lose not the things eternal Through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit One God forever and ever Amen. Please be seated for a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
1: Thanks be to God. A lesson from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 21 through 31, as presented by Eugene Peterson in the message. Now, downtown Athens was a great place for gossip. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike waiting for the latest tidbit on most anything. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Agrippagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed, To the god nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this god so you can worship intelligently, know who you're dealing with, The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him, as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable, with plenty of time and space for living, so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him, can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well We're the God created. Well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make sense for us to think that we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But that time has passed. The unknown is now known and he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Now will you join me in responding Psalm 19 to the Antiphon. the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Today, today, the voice of our night, tonight, there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. voice all and words the end of the
3: world.
2: In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward.
3: But when we we can prayers, from,
2: from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you,
3: O Lord, my rock and my
2: The singing of the Gloria Patri, the reading of the
3: Gospel, and the singing of our hymn.
4: Jesus Christ, according to St. John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Glory to you, o Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The Gospel of the Lord.
5: It's a joy to be in Boston and here at Marsh Chapel this morning, where so many wonderful memories are held for me and for many others. I come from Cleveland, Ohio, from America's North Coast, and I bring you greetings from our congregation at Church of the Savior in Cleveland Heights, and I also understand I'm bringing warm weather with me. It is always sunny and warm in Cleveland. Now that I have lost all credibility with you, I would like to thank Bob and Jan Hill and the chapel staff for your generous hospitality. My wife, Barbara, and I are deeply indebted to all of you. We appreciate it so very much. Let us bow our heads together in prayer. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. On March 9th of this year, A report was released that made the front page of USA Today. It wasn't the story of yet another corporate bankruptcy or a sex scandal involving a prominent politician. It was the report by the American Religious Identification Survey documenting what is widely being proclaimed as the decline of religion in America. The headline read, almost all denominations losing ground, survey finds. And the bold print proclaimed, faith is shifting, drifting, or vanishing outright. The article states that the percentage of people who call themselves some type of Christian has dropped by more than 11% in a generation. The Bible Belt is less Baptist, the Rust Belt is less Catholic, and everywhere, people are exploring spiritual frontiers or falling off the faith map completely. The survey found that in the past 18 years, from 1990 to 1998, in spite of the fact, me, from 1990 to 2008, in spite of the fact that growth and immigration have added nearly 50 million adults to the United States population, almost all religious denominations have lost ground. Most alarming for many is the fact that the group that claims no religion at all—the atheists, agnostics, and other secularists—has almost doubled during the past 18 years from 8.2% to 15%. In New England, the increase in those claiming no religion has been almost threefold in that period of time, larger than the increases in other areas of the country. In Vermont, 34% of the population claim no religious affiliation. A recent Gallup poll revealed that only 42% of Vermonters say that religion is an important part of their daily lives, the lowest percentage of state residents polled across the country. To quote Barry Cosman, the co-author of the American Religious Identification Survey, more than ever before, people are just making up stories about who they are. They say, I'm everything, I'm nothing, I believe in myself. So many religions, so many Americans claim no religion at all, that this category now outranks every other United States religious group, except Catholics and Baptists. The report concludes that in a nation that has long been mostly Christian, the challenge to Christianity does not come from other religions, but from a rejection of all forms of organized religion. When the phone rang on a cold, snowy day in February, It was Bob Hill calling from Boston. Would I be willing to come to Marsh Chapel and preach at my alma mater this summer, he asked. What an honor to preach in the place where, as a seminary student, I heard William Sloan Coffin, Wolfhart Pannenberg, Garrett Wilmore, Harold Beck, Richard Nesmith, Walter Milder, to name a few. What a thrill to stand in the place where Martin Luther King Jr. once stood. And then Bob said that the topic was to be science and religion. Darwin and faith and reality set in. What a challenge to speak about science and religion in a day when religion in general, and the church in particular, seems to be losing ground, a day when our culture is increasingly adopting a non-theistic worldview. To be sure, religion is not going away. In fact, a follow-up article in USA Today by Stephen Prothero, Chair of the Department of Religion here at Boston University, notes that the United States today has more Christians than any other country in human history. But in the day-to-day scheme of things, what is the place of faith in the decision-making process, not only of governments and corporations, but of individuals such as you and me? Aren't we all being affected by the growing secularism of our culture? There was a time when the village church with its spire pointing toward heaven, was the tallest building in town. It reminded all who passed by of the values that the people held and the focus of their faith. Nowadays, the tallest buildings in our cities and towns are the offices of large corporations, dwarfing the churches in size and prominence, and I suspect overshadowing their influence as well. Think about the fact that in Boston, the church spires are not the tallest buildings, but the insurance company buildings are the tallest. That's a sermon in itself. The aerial view of Boston University on the website shows Marsh Chapel at the very center of this great university, but our religious values and ideals at the center of the life and influence of this institution. Didn't it all start about 400 years ago when a man named Galileo pointed his first crude telescope toward the heavens? Yes, 2009 marks not only the 200th birthday of Charles Darwin, but it also marks the 400th anniversary of Galileo's recorded observations with a telescope. And when Galileo looked through that lens, he discovered what contradicted thousands of years of traditional belief. He found that the moon was neither smooth nor unchanging, and that the earth was not the center of everything. Many of Galileo's contemporaries fiercely rejected his findings. Some refused to look through the telescope for fear of what they would see. The Pope summoned Galileo to Rome, where the Inquisition found him, and I quote, vehemently suspect of heresy. Galileo was forced to curse and detest his own work. He lived the rest of his life under house arrest, and his publications were banned. Only in 1992, 359 years after the trial, was an apology issued by Pope John Paul II officially admitting that Galileo was right. As foreign as the idea seems to our thinking today, early astronomers, of course, believed that the Earth was the center of the universe and that the other planets, even the sun, revolved around it. In the early 1500s, before Galileo's telescope, Copernicus, a Polish astronomer, had proposed the radical idea that the sun is the center around which the other planets rotate. He taught that the sun is the source and sustainer of life as we know it. The work of Copernicus marks the starting point of modern astronomy, the beginning of the scientific revolution, And this shift in focus, if you will, from the Earth to the Sun as the center of the solar system became known as the Copernican Revolution. When we are born, we see ourselves as the center of the universe. Everyone and everything exists in relation to us. Babies are very self-centered little creatures. Gradually, as we grow and mature, we begin to see that the world does not revolve around us. Indeed, we begin to see that we are an alarmingly small part of the cosmos, not more than a cog in the machinery. Even though our Judeo-Christian heritage teaches that God has placed humanity at the very pinnacle of the created order, we are not the center of the universe. In our self-absorbed and self-consumed culture, How much we need to hear that. Now, of course, none of us today would proclaim that the Earth is the center of the universe and that the other planets and the sun revolve around the Earth. And yet how many of us, by our actions, imply that we are the center of the universe and that the whole world revolves around us. We demand a grossly disproportionate share of the world's resources to sustain our lifestyle. We have developed a cultural elitism and a chronological snobbery that allows us arrogantly to look down our noses at other cultures and at previous civilizations. When I was a student at Boston University School of Theology, I remember so well Professor Harold Beck cautioning us not to assume that our perspective was somehow superior to others. When Harold and his wife Lila came to Boston to teach, they bought a home in nearby Lexington. They had met when Harold was on an archaeological dig in the Near East. When they fell in love and got married, Lila left her native Egypt to come with Harold to Boston. Wanting Lila Lila to appreciate the rich cultural heritage of New England, some of the well-intentioned women of the area took her on a tour of some of the historic revolutionary war sites of Lexington and Concord. Some of these homes are over 200 years old, the New Englanders told her. And Harold Beck, in his dry style, commented, my wife, who grew up with a pyramid in her backyard, was not impressed. When Paul arrived in Athens, a leading city of his day, He encountered much the same atmosphere that a person finds in any modern city in the United States. Some superficial attention given to religion, but not much in the way of substance and meaning. Paul noticed that the city was full of idols, statues to this god and that one, with an uh, altar ascribed to each one. The idols were offensive to the apostle, but then he noticed an altar with the inscription, To the God Nobody Knows. In other words, people were so concerned about doing their religious duty that they erected an extra altar just in case there was one of the pantheon of deities that they had accidentally forgotten. Now before we laugh at the superficial and superstitious nature of the first century Greeks, may I say that I have encountered many 21st century Americans whose religion is little more than superstition. Like the person who throws a pinch of salt over his shoulder for good luck. We come to church if we need a favor from God or we are feeling especially guilty about something and hope that by doing this or that, God will smile favorably in our direction. I can never quite understand the mentality of people who join a church or attend services or give a little money because, as they say, I want to have all my bases covered. That, my friends, is superstition, not religion. But just to be on the safe side, People say, I will give lip service to the traditional faith. Superstition says, I'll call on God when I need to, but when things are going well, I'll just go on my merry way. Superstition is inconsistent. It does not take life seriously. It plays the odds rather than faces the realities. And yet, that's the level upon which most people operated in first century Greece and the level upon which many people function today. In contrast to that, says Paul in his sermon to the people of Athens and to the people of New England, there is a better way. This unknown God can be known. This mysterious presence to which you pay lip service can be understood and comprehended. You are missing something in your lives that this superficial nod toward religion is not going to satisfy. Why don't you try real religion for a change? The essential message of Christianity is that this God whom we believe in not only exists, but is actively pursuing us, redeeming us, and seeking to guide us from day to day. God is not just a vague something or other that we try not to upset. God can be a vital life force making a difference in our lives, not just in the emergencies of life when we don't know where else to turn, but in every aspect of our existence. The unknown God makes himself known through the creation. I could easily become a nature worshiper. When I see a bird or a beautiful flower or the gracefulness of a deer or the overwhelming lure of the ocean or the majesty of a mountain or the power of a thunderstorm, I am aware of the power of God operating in the world and I stand in awe of the creation. The unknown God makes himself known through other people. When I am down and someone listens to me, When I'm happy and someone celebrates with me, when I'm anxious and afraid and someone takes my hand, then I know that God exists and that God cares. God often works through other people. The unknown God makes himself known most profoundly and most completely in Jesus Christ. When God became a person, God limited himself, yet revealed God's true nature in such a compelling way that it's hard for me to understand how anyone Could miss the point. If we want to see what God is like, all we need to do is look at Jesus. Jesus cared about the people that everyone else forgot. He was also concerned about the dimensions of personality that everyone else wants to overlook their inner feelings, their yearnings, their deep need for God. Jesus wanted to see that the hungry were fed, but he was concerned not only with the sharing of daily bread but also with, also with satisfying the hungers of the human heart. He was concerned with the alleviation of pain and suffering, but he recognized that mental and emotional anguish are the most severe pain of all. He talked with people about matters of life and death, reminding them that only those who are prepared to die are really ready to live, and that life after death is not only a future possibility, but it can be a present reality. Jesus taught by example that the meaning of life is not up for grabs. It need not be a superficial and self-centered existence, but a bold and confident adventure of faith. Copernicus discovered that the earth was not the center of the universe, that the sun was the center around which the other planets rotate. Christians believe that God can be known and that the sun is the center around which our lives should rotate That is the S-O-N. This is a fundamental Christian belief, a shift in focus, if you will. If we embrace that belief, it will cause a Copernican revolution in our lives where we will begin to see that I am not the center of the universe, nor does the world revolve around me. Instead, we have a new center, the bright light of the sun, S-O-N, to lead and guide us from day to day, as we are told in the prologue, To John's Gospel. Yes, my friends, the unknown God can be known. My own journey of faith has convinced me of that. And yet, God remains beyond our total comprehension, more powerful than we can imagine. It was Pascal who said a religion which does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. While the reality of the presence of God stands at the center of biblical faith, God's presence is always elusive. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, Isaiah writes. The deity of the Hebrew and Christian scriptures always escapes human grasp and human manipulation. Several years ago, New Testament scholar J.B. Phillips wrote a book that became quite popular in religious circles entitled, Your God is Too Small. In it, he addressed a number of issues that people have about Christianity and pointed out that oftentimes our concept of God is too narrow or too provincial to embrace the God of the universe that the psalmist writes about and that our choir is singing about. The God of the cosmos can embrace scientific discussion and the expansion of human knowledge. The God that we worship can embrace the ideas of Galileo Copernicus and Darwin and the best minds of our postmodern world. Francis Collins, until last summer headed the National Genome Research Institute, said in an interview, when I discover something about the human genome, I experience a sense of awe at the mystery of life and say to myself, wow, only God knew that before. Collins writes, in my view, There is no conflict in being a rigorous scientist and a person who believes in a God who takes a personal interest in each of us. If you believe that science and faith are not compatible, then perhaps, my friends, your God is too small. In his book, A Mass for the Dead, William Gibson tells about his own struggle for faith. He says that one time after his mother died, he picked up her gold-rimmed spectacles and her faded, dog-eared prayer book. He sat in what was her favorite chair. He opened the book and tried to hear in those words what she must have heard. He placed the spectacles on his nose and tried to see what she must have seen in that book. He reached in desperation for the slender thread of her faith, once so alive, so real, so meaningful. William Gibson writes that he did not see what she had seen, nor did he hear what she had heard. Gibson tried to stoke the fire of his mother's faith, but it never works that way. Every one of us must discover the faith and come to know God for ourselves. This morning I stand before you to tell you about the God nobody knows as Eugene Peterson translates it, the God who is bigger than all our concepts and theories and ideas. I submit that this God is knowable, for I have seen evidence of God's power and God's handiwork and so have you. I have seen God at work in the kind and loving acts of so many people. And so have you. I have seen God revealed most clearly through Jesus Christ. World-famous missionary E. Stanley Jones, who taught a class of Boston seminarians, myself among them, was fond of saying, if God is like Jesus, he could have my life without question. Yes, God is like Jesus, and I hold him before you today. You are not the center of the universe. Our earth revolves around the sun, and God intends that your life revolve around the sun too. That's the S-O-N. If you have not already done so, it is my prayer that you will take that leap of faith and commit your life to the God who can be known. And may each of us commit ourselves to follow where God leads. Let us pray. Almighty God, come into our hearts this day. Fill us with your presence and your power. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.
0: friends, let us prepare our hearts for prayer by singing together, Lead Me, Lord, as printed in your Dear friends, as we pray, I will conclude each petition, Lord, in your mercy, if you would please respond, hear our prayer. Together, let us pray for the people of this congregation, for our life together, and our ministry in the city of Boston. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray for those who suffer and those in trouble, for those who are sick and in prison and for those who have no one to pray for them. Lord, in your mercy. Let us pray for the concerns of this local community, for the incoming class of students here at Boston University, and for our recent graduates as they move on into their lives in the world. Lord, in your mercy. Let us pray for the world, its people, and its leaders, that we may walk together in a spirit of peace, and that our leaders may act with justice and with mercy. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray for the Church Universal, its leaders, its members, and its mission, that all may be one. Lord, in your mercy. And as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, now and forever. The peace of the Lord be always with you. you. Only a few announcements this morning. We are deeply glad to have you here with us. We hope you will fill out the red book at the end of each pew to let us know who you are and help us get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the week. We hope you'll join us following the service for coffee hour. We are inside today due to the threat of rain outdoors, so do join us downstairs in the marsh room following the service for coffee hour. And we would remind you to keep an eye on the Marsh Chapel website, bu.edu/chapel, for upcoming activities and events, especially as we come toward the beginning of this academic year in September, and we also there is available the opportunity for online giving. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
3: three, one God in holy community. We who are made in your image offer up to your work of love and justice. These are gifts of money, the symbol of our time, our life energy, our resources, and our commitment. Bless and multiply these gifts, we pray, that the giving may become receiving, and the receiving may become giving. In the name of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
5: bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace.